Uh, our being able to share together. So, uh, chapter uh, 12, 1 to 7. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, you live in the midst of the rebellious house, who have eyes to see, but do not see, ears to hear, but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. Therefore, son of man, prepare for yourself baggage for exile, and go into exile by day in their sight. Even go into exile from your place to another place in their sight. Perhaps they will understand, though they are rebellious house. <coughs> Bring your baggage out by day in their sight as baggage for exile. Then you will go out at evening in their sight as those going into exile. Dig a hole through the wall in their sight and go out through it. Load the baggage on your shoulder in their sight and carry it out in the dark. You shall cover your face so that you cannot see the land, for I have set you as a sign to the house of Israel. I did so as I had been commanded. By day I brought my baggage uh, like the baggage of the exile. Then in the evening I dug through the wall with my hands. I went out in the dark and carried the baggage on my shoulder in their All right, so verse 2, you live in the midst of a rebellious house. These exiles were still rebellious people, eyes, but they don't use them, ears, but they don't use them, they're a rebellious house. I think that's a part of why God uses these pantomimes, these uh, symbolic actions, kind of bizarre actions that Ezekiel's doing, how else do you communicate with such hard-headed people? People who stopped up their ears and closed their eyes, you know, you're going to have a hard time getting through to them. So Ezekiel will act things out in some kind of odd ways, drawing curious spectators who maybe will start to think about what does all this mean and why is God saying for him to do this? Now, God is letting him know as he keeps doing all through this. He's letting them know ahead of time not to have an overly optimistic expectation of how they're going to respond. They're rebellious people. Don't expect from people like this you're going to get a positive response. But God wants them to hear it anyway, whether they're listening or not. As we said, it's comforting to know that evangelizing is proclaiming the word. Evangelizing is not having success at having people be converted. So, go. Now, he says, son of man, here's what I want you to do. Did you notice the operative phrase in this section? If you took all of the in their sights out, it'd be about 40% less uh, long, right? He just kept stressing, do it in their sight, in their sight, in their sight, in their sight. He wants them to see this. So what's he having Ezekiel do? Well, he wants him to, to pack his bags. You know, they're going like, like, like they had done when they went into exile. Can you imagine refugees? You know, we see images on news or whatever of refugees fleeing some kind of, you know, disturbance, some kind of a war or whatever. You collect up what you can carry, you know, in your sack or whatever you've got. You know, so you've got to decide what belongings you're going to take with you. You can't take it all. And you grab them and you go out and you just start, you hit the tra trail, the road, whatever, trudging along, getting away from the, the disaster. That's what he wants Ezekiel to do. Get his baggage together, bring it out, you're going into exile. And, and since these people would remember how it had been just a few years before when they went into exile, this would be especially resonant with them. 
They, they would certainly relate to. They've done it before themselves. They would understand what this meant. There's a, a question mark about verse 5. Dig a hole through the wall in their sight and go out through it. I suspect, but I'm not sure about this, that this represents what the Babylonians did. The Babylonians were the ones that made the hole in the wall. And uh, so I, my guess is he's both the refugee uh, leaving, and he's also the Babylonians digging the hole through the wall to get in to destroy them. That could go either way, but I think that may make more sense. Um, but at any rate, he goes into exile, so to speak, you know, here in Babylon, symbolizing what he was, uh, you know, what, what they were, uh, well, really symbolizing what the rest of the people in Jerusalem would be doing. This is, this is actually what's going to happen in the city. The rest of them are going to go into exile as well. Thoughts and comments? Okay. Uh, 8 to Now remember that when Ezekiel's doing this, he's acting out of this, going into exile, he's not speaking. Remember, he doesn't speak unless the Lord tells him to say something. Then he speaks. So most of this he does in silence. It's it's pantomime. You know, play charades before you can't talk. You have to act it out. Get them to guess what you're doing. That's kind of the idea. But they come to him and they ask him, what does this mean? What are you doing? And at this point, you know, he explains, God tells him to say that this is what's going to be done to the people in Jerusalem. They're going to go into exile. They're going to go into captivity. The prince is going to load his baggage and go out and and bring him out. He's going to uh, be brought, caught in the snare and brought to Babylon. He won't see Babylon He'll die in Babylon. Now, the prince is Ezekiel's favorite term for the king, for whatever reason. And uh, this is kind of odd. So, Zedekiah is going to go out. He's going to be captured by the Babylonians. He's going to be brought to Babylon. He's never going to see Babylon. 
is going to die in battle. That strikes you as a bit problematic. I don't know if this was true or not, but Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that Zedekiah rejected this oracle because it was contradictory. It looks like it. How do you go to Babylon? You don't see Babylon. You die in Babylon. Well, exactly the way they did it with Zedekiah, as a matter of fact. Because when he was captured by the Babylonians, they slaughtered his officials and his sons before him and then gouged his eyes out and took him to Babylon. He went to Babylon, he died in Babylon, but he never saw Babylon. Who would have ever thought that's how this would work itself out? That was pretty uh, pretty incredible. But it was exactly what God said, even though you'd have read that at first and thought, wait a minute, that can't happen that way. So, that's what's happening. The nation, the people of Jerusalem, they're going into captivity, including the prince, Zedekiah. He's going to spare a few uh, that they can show the nations why God judged them by the nations recognizing their abominations. Thoughts and comments through verse 16. Yes, Dave. God's word seems contradictory, we just haven't understood it fully. Yeah. Micaiah. He does love them. He's seeking for them. Yes, Michael. Yeah, both. Yeah. Second Kings and Second Chronicles, both at the end, tell them. Isn't it also in Jeremiah 39? Yes, good point. It is. Yes, Jeremiah also. You know, the destruction of Jerusalem was so important that God tells about it several places. Jeremiah 39 and Jeremiah 52 and 2 Kings 25 and 2 Chronicles 36. So we've got lots of historical accounts of Jerusalem's destruction. Yeah, it's kind of an unusual feature. Sid. You think that he uses French over and over again to He clearly does at least use prince where we would use king most of the time. 
Maybe he does that to show God's king. I'm not really sure about that. I'm not sure the reason, but but he does do it consistently. Some of the people said, have said, well, that's just he's diminishing Zedekiah. He's just a prince. He's not really a king. Well, that would work with Zedekiah, but it doesn't work with the, the Messiah being the prince. So I think that's not an adequate explanation. So maybe what you're saying is right. I don't know. Other thoughts? All right. Uh, this one's kind of interesting. Imagine this, 17 to 20. So, this is another acted out thing. Ezekiel's going to be eating and drinking. But as he does that, he does it with a trembling hand. So he's trying to eat without poking himself with his fork. He's trying to drink without spilling it all over himself. You know, it's almost like if you've seen, you know, somebody who's got like Parkinson's or something that really struggles to be able to control their hand motions enough to be able to feed themselves. It's really painful. You hate seeing that and you realize it's kind of demeaning and certainly has to be irritating to them and all of that. But that's what he's asking Ezekiel to do. You know, sometimes we get diseases and we don't have a choice. But I think most of us would really recoil from the choice of doing that. We would like to not make a scene like that. And yet, God tells Ezekiel, that's how I want you to eat and drink. And again, you, you can imagine the people looking on and thinking, what in the world are you doing? And what he's doing is symbolizing how it's going to be in Jerusalem. Things are going to be so desperate and so panic-stricken that they're going to be eating and drinking with shaking hands. They're trembling with anxiety and fear and despair. And he's acting out then what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Thoughts and comments? Next, there's a couple of sayings the people had that Ezekiel is set to refute. 21 to 28.
Here are the things the people were saying about Ezekiel's prophecies. They were saying, you know, it's been a long time he's been saying this, and it never happens. You know, you just can't believe it, that these doom and gloom people, they've been harping on the same note forever. You know, they talk tough, but nothing ever happens. You know, you listen to all those warnings, it could just drive you neurotic. And so the vision fails. It never happens. It's not true. Now, you can see that a little bit. You know, Ezekiel has been saying for a while now, Jerusalem's going to fall. And for that matter, Jeremiah had been saying it a lot longer than that, and so forth. And it hadn't happened. It hadn't happened. It hadn't happened. And you're pretty soon we get kind of like, it's not going to happen. Yeah, it's just, that's just those prophets. You know, they just go off on that story like they always do. You know, can you see that being said? Can you see that happening? And what's the cure for that? Yeah. God says, well, you know, we're going to deal with that. Uh, they won't be able to say that anymore because I'm just going to do it. <laughs> And uh, nothing will silence a false slogan like the actual judgment coming. So they kind of had to learn the hard way that uh, saying that the promise, that the threats were never going to happen was not true. They also would say in verse 27, well, it may happen, but not for a long time. Well, there's a way to handle that one too, and that's to bring it right away, and that's what God's going to do. So they kept trying to argue. Either that the prophecies just weren't true or that they wouldn't happen anytime soon so that it didn't really affect them. And when God hears them do that, he just lowers the boom right then. And that way that silences those uh, little, uh, you know, ways they dealt with that, those little excuses they offered not to pay attention to the prophecies. People will do that sometimes. We'll get lulled to sleep. You know, God hadn't come back yet. Jesus hadn't come back yet. He didn't come back. Right. You know, it's easy for us to think that. It's easy for us not to recognize that the Lord is in control and that he will bring his judgments to pass. Thoughts and comments? Yeah, Jay. Chapter 13. Somebody read 1 to 7. 